Speaking with Experts is produced for informational and entertainment purposes only. It is not intended to provide legal or professional advice or to constitute any type of sponsorship or endorsement. Welcome. This is Steve Klepper, the head of the appellate practice at Cramon and Graham here in Baltimore. And I'm pleased today to continue our conversation with retired Fourth Circuit judge and city solicitor Andre Davis as we continue talking about the topic of mentors and role models. Now you left to be to go back to University of Maryland School of Law, right? Yes. How how did that come to happen? Well, a mentor Clint Bamberger, uh, Clinton, uh, of course, just another one of the giants of Maryland law, uh, argued um, Brady versus Maryland before the Supreme Court. First. Uh, director of the uh, Legal Services Corporation, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Clinton and I got to know each other. I I don't remember exactly how, but he was at that time uh, very much involved at the law school. He was not a a, a formal formal tenure track professor, but he was teaching at the law school, was very close to Larry Gibson. And I think the word got back to him that, you know, I was thinking of uh, leaving the law firm and I was teaching as an adjunct at the time. Got it. Yeah, I had been teaching at the at the law school for two or three years as an adjunct, criminal procedure. Um, and Clinton reached out to me one day and said, you know, oh, and Judge Murnahan, actually. Judge Murnahan, actually, uh, during the clerkship, actually wrote to a couple of law schools. Without my knowledge, I don't, I don't think he talked to me in advance. He just sort of dropped these letters on me at some point during the clerkship and said, I want you to know I've written to Dean X and Dean Y that you'd be a great professor. (laughs) Kind of blew my mind. And and of course, Judge Murnahan knew that I was teaching part-time at Maryland. So it may well have been Murnahan who contacted Clint Bamberger at at Maryland. And of course, um, Michael Kelly is also another mentor that I should have mentioned earlier. He was the dean of the law school at that time. So it all came together and Clinton uh, urged me to take 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 a chance and accept an appointment to the law school faculty on the tenure track. I really wasn't looking forward to spending, you know, countless hours writing law review articles that nobody would ever read. But this is this was at a time when Mike Kelly, the dean, was moving Maryland to another higher tier of law schools. And to do that, among the things you have to do is you have to have faculty who write law review articles that nobody ever reads. Correct. <laughs> you know? And so I, I, I said, okay, I can, I can do this. Um, and Because I love teaching. Yeah. I absolutely love teaching. So that's what happened. Um, I think my first year I was appointed as a visiting professor, and then I got a full tenure track appointment as an assistant professor the year after that, or during that year. Did you publish law review articles no one read during that I time? I did not, I did not. You know, it's 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 interesting you asked that question. So, so I, you know, again, Bill Reynolds, still a mentor. My office was right next to Bill's. And and Bill was a something of a prolific writer um, and a good writer, great. He's a great legal scholar. And so I kibitz with, with Bill from time to time. You know, Bill, I'm, I'm, I think I'm going to write on Fourth Amendment stuff. That's, that's what I'm really interested in. And I'm, I'm, I need some motivation. 
And, and Bill said, don't try to do too much at once. You know, why don't you write something smaller to get started? Because I hadn't been on law review in, in law school. I'd done moot court and done it well, but I had not been law review. And I said, well, okay. He said, write a book review. I thought, perfect, perfect. Get, get the juices flowing a little bit. And so um, I don't know exactly how it happened, but uh, I don't know if you know Thimble Riggers. I don't. Of course you don't. Thimble Riggers uh, is a history of the Marvin Mandel prosecution. Oh, yes, yes. Written by a journalist, a fairly prominent journalist, although I can't remember his name as I sit here, uh, at the Sun Papers. And again, I don't know exactly how it happened. Probably Bill Reynolds, you know, made it happen somehow. But I was given the assignment of writing a, a book review for Thimble Riggers. Yeah. And it was published. Where was it published? I'm sure your Senate questionnaire. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's, it's in there. It. It's in there. Um, I don't remember where it was published. I, I guess it was, I imagine it was published in the Sun. But I, I don't remember. Anyway, so so I was yeah. I was getting into the mode, and I spent a lot of hours in the library, and uh, I had a I had a topic, and I believe I did one of these faculty presentations. You know, in the in in the in the academy, you you develop your ideas and you develop your your journal articles by doing oral presentations to um, your faculty members, and I. Pretty sure I did one of those on some some obscure Fourth Amendment issue. This was at a time, of course, again, this is 1984 to 1987. And so the Supreme Court is really in the midst of what I call the, the drug war constitution, of creating the drug war constitution. You know, the court was deciding every term, as, as I know you know, Steve, from your practice, the court was deciding all these cases that were not only cutting back on some of the Warren Court criminal procedure protections, but really creating just terrible, terrible law um, as a part of the quote unquote war on drugs that just created a lot of what we saw in the George Floyd case and some of the other cases, by which I mean the court's decisions back in the 80s and 90s created the slippery slope for police officers that created um, militarized policing and encouraging police officers to exceed the bounds of constitutional propriety, uh, and that's that's what we're left with. Anyway, so I was I was full of, and, know, and yet three years around the time most people are applying for tenure, you become a judge. Well, right, I became a judge. So so. Uh, when, when did you decide in this process, you know what, I'm going to become a state district court judge? Again, a moment in time that I remember very well. Um, up and through that, uh, up through 1986, I had no aspiration, no interest in becoming a judge. Uh, and I really mean that. Yeah. I had clerked for two of the greatest judges um, the law has ever seen, Judge Kaufman and Judge Murnahan. And I saw close up what truly good judging is really all about. Mm -hmm. It's hard work. 
Not that I have anything against hard work. I love hard work. But I wanted to be an advocate. That's what I wanted to be. A trial level advocate in particular. Um, and I knew that the law got in the way of justice. And when that happens, a judge has to turn their back. Judges have to turn their back on justice. Not to be too poetic about it. That's the truth. So I was not remotely interested. But here's what happened, Steve. I was teaching, and I love teaching, as I said. I was teaching civil procedure, federal civil procedure, and criminal procedure, legal profession, you know, professional responsibility, uh, and, some, and some other things. I later taught fed jurisdiction and so on. And so here's the thing, when you teach federal civil procedure, and this was, you know, a full year, six credit course, soup to nuts. Wow. They don't do that anymore. No, no. Probably not when you were in law school. Maybe it, was, it was one, it was one, one semester. semester. This was a two semester, you know. And so here's what happens back then when you taught civil procedure. Um, the civil procedure casebooks were focused on civil procedure, of course. But the actual cases in the civil procedure casebook ran the gamut of everything from property law, estates and trusts, um, corporations, torts, you name it. Because the cases in the casebook were there for the particular procedural wrinkle or lesson to yeah. be learned. But the underlying substantive law was there also. And what I discovered pretty quickly, because, you know, and you'll remember this, you know, the battle between first and second year law teachers and law students is a battle royale. And law students have as a part of their uh, mission to demonstrate, one, that they're smarter than the teacher, and two, that the teacher really doesn't know what he's talking about. Yeah. And, and to be perfectly bl blunt about this, back then, even in the early 80s, Black teachers in law schools, all law schools, whether it was Harvard or Maryland or in between, black teachers had real challenges from particularly white students. Mm -hmm. There was an illegitimacy around the idea that this black lawyer, this black law professor actually knows what he's talking about. Well, I mean, you hadn't even published any articles. I hadn't right? published a thing, later published Thimble Riggers, Laurie, uh, book review. So I, I share all of that to say uh, what, what, what I ended up doing was becoming an expert, air quotes, okay, people can't see this, but I'm doing air quotes, an expert in every area of the law that there was. Now, of course, I was not an expert, but when I was teaching from the casebook, and the case involved um, a duty of care owed by some common carrier. Yeah. You know, so the case involved some accident between a between a a, a, a bus and a and a taxi cab, right? Yeah. Arising under Nebraska law, right? Yeah. <laughs> it just happened to be in federal court, and there was some aspect of procedure. Well, I spent a lot of time researching 
common carrier liability. Yeah. Because I, when I went in that classroom the next day or next week, and this knucklehead on the front row who raised his hand and said, well, Professor Davis, uh, I don't understand why, you know, not asking about the procedure, but about the underlying tort claim or the underlying issue of corporate law mm -hmm. under Idaho law. So, so all of that taught me that I could learn anything. I already knew that, but I, I proved it yeah. to myself. But and, you know, as a black law professor in the 1980s, you didn't have the luxury of just knowing your subject matter. No, you, no. You no. needed to be expert enough in I everything. Need, I needed to know everything. And what happened one day, that moment in time that I talked about was, you know what? Teaching and judging are the same thing. Yeah. Now that sounds weird. Even sounds a little weird to me today. But honestly, that was how I came to view myself. Hey, I could be a good judge. Yeah. I could be a good judge. Well, I mean, explaining to people why they lose. Exactly. Exactly. And explaining to people why they win. Yeah. And why they would have lost but for this, and, this, and this. And you're not morally superior because you've won. It's just that this is under these facts as I found them or a jury found them. Uh, this is why you win. You are exactly right. And so I saw the District Court of Maryland as a place where I could perform public service. Yeah. You know, it's a hackneyed, you know, phrase, but it's where most Marylanders, the vast majority of Marylanders, will encounter the legal system at the District Court of Maryland. Speeding ticket, landlord tenant, you sue your dry cleaners because they screwed up your prom dress, whatever it is, I wanted to be in that arena. And again, I was thinking about my time at the Housing Authority. Yeah. So I knew what goes on at the District Court. And by the way, the first lawsuit I ever brought was about a year after I I'm sorry. No, please. I got to share this story because it's important in my life. I, about a year after after I uh, I, I I graduated, uh, I was here in Baltimore working. I think I was working. I think I was still working in retail, but I may have been at the housing authority by then. But I, I had a car that needed some work, and it was a stick shift. It was a manual. Transfer. I drive stick. I know how to do that. Yeah. Yeah. One okay. Field. Okay. <laughs> um, and I took it to a place for some repairs. Um, I think it was a Volvo 242, a boxy, you know, 1972 Volvo stick shift. And I took it up to Town Road, and they said it would only take an hour or so I could wait for it. So there happened to be a fast food restaurant across the street from the place. So I said, well, I'll go over here and have This a is reading like a law school exam <laughs> hypothetical. Like, this, this is, find this the important information. It's the course of my life. Long story short, I'm sitting there in the fast food restaurant, probably reading the morning paper or something, and I watch as the guy from the, from the, uh, from the, from the automotive place try to drive my car into the service bay. Mm -hmm. And he, he doesn't know how to drive a stick. And he burns up the clutch. Literally. I'm oh, a, I've, I've had that happen. I'm Valets a, have done it. The stench. There you go. There you go. I'm a witness to the destruction of the clutch in my... 
1972 Volvo 242. So, so I'm calm, you know. It's I, probably totaled at that point. <laughs> so when I go to pick it up, they tell me the car is broken. Anyway, long story short, they won't take responsibility. So I sue them. Mm-hmm. I sue them pro se, small claim. Uh, to get it repaired, I think it was like $242. Yeah. So I sued them for $242 in, at Fayette and Gay. Yep. And they settled on the courthouse steps. That That's great. And then come 1995, <laughs> you're suddenly like, wait, I have to like summarize this for my Senate disclosure, <laughs> list all litigation you've ever been a part of. <laughs> Little did you Actually, know. Actually, I think I left. Actually, no, I did include that. I'm, I'm certain. Uh, you know. I think I did include I, that. I cannot imagine <laughs> I think I did. that the White House Counsel's Office would have like failed to have figured that out. Anyway, uh, in living memory, to my knowledge, I am the only full-time law professor ever to be appointed to a Maryland court. Directly to the Maryland court. Directly to a Maryland court. You know, uh, Schaefer obviously heard from a lot of people who thought very highly of me, um, and th- and I remember there were lots and lots of applicants for that for that seat, mm-hmm. um, including one other law professor, in fact, really from the University of Baltimore, um, and I was very honored, of course, when I got the call that he was going to make the appointment, and and I remember uh, my mentor. Uh, a number of my mentors at the law school thought I was making a serious mistake, mm-hmm. uh, including Larry Gibson and Clint Bamberger, and you know, I'm sure all of them. When has this ever been a path to greatness? Right, yes. exactly. And this is before Judge Bell had gone from district court to circuit court to court of special appeals. Actually, of appeals. no, Judge Bell, who who was one of my, you know, I didn't know Judge Bell at the time, but I was inspired by Judge Bell. Yeah. Uh, Judge Bell was appointed, as I recall, in 75. Yeah. To the is that right? Was it the People's Court then? Or no, I think court? I think yeah. it was. I think it had become the District Court. But Judge Bell made a name for himself. Uh, I don't know how much of his history you know, but you know, he got a lot of publicity when he refused to convict um, prostitutes. It got a lot of media attention. Mm-hmm. I, I don't remember the details, but he became someone that I admired from from some distance, um, quite a bit. Um, but I'll, I'll never forget Clint Bamberger. I said to Clint Bamberger, who, you know, what are you doing? What, yeah. what on earth are you doing? And I remember saying to Clint Bamberger, it's a very moving conversation. I said, uh, Clint, uh, I really think I would enjoy, I know I will enjoy the District Court of Maryland. Mm-hmm. And by the way, I don't want to preside over a death penalty case. Yeah. And you know what he said to me? He said, Andre, I wouldn't want to send anybody to the Baltimore City Jail. Yeah. That was so eye-opening. Yeah. It was truly eye-opening. Uh, it chastened me, you know. Yeah. I, I thought I was, you know, avoiding. Here you are making bail decisions yeah. that will yeah. change people's lives. Yeah. I was so glad when he said that to me. Because yeah. it, it really, you know, don't think you're, you know, anyway. It, it turned out to be the, the greatest three years of my life. And then you apply to become a circuit court judge again, Governor Schaefer. Quite still. reluctantly. So, reluctantly. 
quite reluctantly. Well, who, who, who asked you? To do it, 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 it was it was lots of politics. Um, at the time, the um, the judicial politics in Baltimore City, in particular, but in Maryland, uh, were hot and heavy. Um, the The black bar felt quite justifiably that. Uh, the underrepresentation of of black judges, particularly in Baltimore City, um, was not acceptable. That black lawyers were not being given a fair shot by the judicial nominating commissions and by the governors, um, etc. And so, at the circuit court level, by then, so this was eighty seven. By then. Uh, there had been quite a bit of controversy over Alpha Ginsky and Peter Ward, two white lawyers who uh, were appointed by, uh, I guess, Mandel, or maybe Schaefer, I don't remember. But anyway, um, they, they, when they ran for, you know, in Maryland at the circuit yeah. court level, as you well know, you, you can get appointed and then you run in the next general election. Yeah. Well, the two of them, I don't think it was the same election, yeah. but the two of them lost in the following general election. Um, uh, Alpha Ginsky, by the way, uh, was castigated by the community because he held unconstitutional during that period after he'd been appointed mm -hmm. and before the election he held unconstitutional a rent control uh, ordinance that Baltimore City had adopted. So, so he didn't know that you're not supposed to make any controversial rulings <laughs> right. in that period of time. Right, right. Keep your head down. Right. And Peter Ward, bless his heart, who I know well, um, was uh, is British by birth and has this one. Do you know Peter? I don't. He has this wonderful British accent. Just and it's a wonderful, wonderful lawyer, wonderful guy. He got appointed and. He, uh, he was defeated by a white lawyer who ran, also named Ward. Oh no! Who's a former city council person, Tom Ward. Okay. Who who served for many years. So so the the politics around judicial elections were such that people were really paying attention to uh, who was being appointed, who was going to run. You know, we have this so-called sitting judge principle in Maryland, so that when you get appointed by the governor to a circuit court in Baltimore City, the, the judges who are up for election at the next general election run together as a slate. Yes. As, as a slate. And so during this time, there was a lot of attention being paid to the racial makeup of the of the slate. Aha. And so they wanted to be in a picture with, with you. Exactly. Exactly. And so uh, I, I won't go into any greater detail but the year that I ran, after I was appointed to the circuit court, uh, we had three sitting judges, mm -hmm. Joe McCurdy, Paul Smith, and Andre Davis. The three, Joe McCurdy, white, Paul Smith, black, Andre Davis, black. Um, we had been colleagues on the District Court of Maryland, oh. actually. Uh, and Schaefer had appointed all of us to the circuit court for Baltimore City. Uh, and so... And did you uh, have we, to present? We Did, ended up not having any opposition. Well, there we go. That that's that's we, a good slate. We had two fundraisers, and we ended up giving the bulk of the money 
to the next uh, year's legal aid. Oh, okay. we, we did leave some for the next go round of of sitting judges, but we gave most of it to I think legal aid and some other charity. So, did you have to preside over any death penalty trials? No, I didn't. Um, the The death penalty in Baltimore was obviously was still on the books, but uh, neither what smoke and then jessamine neither smoke nor jessamine nor nor uh, um Stu sims who succeeded jessamine oh or uh, no, no i think Stu was Stu was interim i think okay between between kurt smoke and jessamine, and jessamine yeah um kurt may have sought it in one case i think but it was it was not a real a real thing in baltimore city and, really and yet if you're, you're charging the county, oh, uh, oh. Th there was the policy of seeking death penalty in every case. Exactly. Sandy, Sandy O'Connor sought it in every case. Yeah, so it's very confusing as a young lawyer that Sandy O'Connor was the Baltimore County State's Attorney while Sandra Day O'Connor was our well-known Supreme Court Justice. Uh, and so, uh, did you see the movie Everything Everywhere All at Once? I haven't seen it yet. It's an odd movie, uh, but uh, you know, I, I'm trying to think there are so many different timelines and there's one where you could have just stayed a state district court judge for your entire career. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like you would have enjoyed yourself. I would have. Immensely. Would have. And then there's the circuit court for Baltimore City. and um, and But then, like, so there's another break in the timeline here. So my understanding is that in 1994, you applied for the Court of Special Appeals. I did. I did. Um, for various reasons. Uh, there was a, a, a vacancy. I forget if it was a city seat or an at-large seat, but but I applied, as did a number of other people, including, uh, I think, at least one and maybe two or three other circuit court judges from Baltimore City. And um, and I was passed on to the governor by the, by the commission and had a great interview. I've told you before, I thought it was the best job interview I ever had with Governor Schaefer. Um, I left there thinking, boy, um, I'm in pretty good shape here. He might appoint me. Yeah. Uh, but in the end, he didn't. He appointed Ellen Hollander, mm -hmm. my colleague on the circuit court for Baltimore City. Uh, and I continued to serve as a circuit court judge. And interesting bit of trivia, when you were uh, eventually, when you were elevated to, from the U.S. District Court to the Fourth Circuit, uh, who, who replaced you on the U.S. District Court? The Honorable Ellen Hollander. Uh, not only replaced me, but moved into my chambers in the Garmatz Courthouse on the fifth floor. That's, yeah, that's great. She's and, she's been a dear friend and, and a Goucher College and grad. a Goucher College alum, just like me. And yes. you, during all of this, you've always had a lot a lot of extracurricular activities. You were. I was a trustee of Goucher College from nineteen for for two three year terms. I think ending in, I want to say eighty one, but I don't remember exactly. That's, that's terrific. And let's see, we are running short on time here, my goodness. Uh, but okay. uh, let's, uh, uh, maybe we'll invite you back for, for another session at some point. I would um, be willing. So uh, you, um, so Judge, Judge Hollander goes the Court of Special Appeals route. And, but then there you are in 1995. How did you come to become a U.S. District Court judge? Well, um, when when uh, Clinton was elected in '92, there were uh, three vacancies, existing vacancies on the District Court of Maryland, 
uh, of the ten of the ten slots, and at least two nominees had either had a hearing. Uh, two of uh, first uh, President Bush's nominees had had a hearing, or they were scheduled for a hearing, and it never happened. In any event, those nominations sort of died on the vine mm -hmm. at the end of that Congress in ninety one, in ninety two. Uh, and then when Clinton became president in 93, it was around the same time that the Greenbelt Southern Division was created so that Maryland now had a, a Northern Division, Baltimore, a Southern Division, Greenbelt. And the lawyers uh, and judges down in the Washington area had for years been agitating about the lack of representation on the federal bench uh, in Maryland among lawyers from the Washington suburbs, Montgomery mm -hmm. County, Prince George's County. And Steny Hoyer had managed to get the Greenbelt Courthouse authorized by Congress. Where, where he has his offices. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it hadn't opened in, in 93, but it was under construction. And so um, Senator Sarbanes, then Senator Sarbanes, sort of you know, uh, managed the process uh, for the White House, uh, interviewed a number of people, including myself, for those original three vacancies. So you might have been in Greenbelt. It might have been, but yeah. the word got out pretty pretty quickly that um, the people Sarbanes intended to recommend to the White House were almost certainly going to be lawyers and, and or judges from Montgomery, Prince George's County. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened. Alex Williams, the then state's attorney for Prince George's County, uh, judge Debbie, Debbie Chazanel, uh, judge who Chazanel. was then a, a magistrate judge on the district court who lived in Prince George's County and whose husband was a, a Maryland judge, later to become a judge on the Court of Appeals of Maryland, and Peter Massetti, who was then a circuit court judge in Montgomery County. So those were the three recommendations that Sarbanes supported to the White House, and, and all three eventually were confirmed. And Fast forward a year and a half, or yeah. even a year, and lo and behold, there are three more vacancies. Three more all at once. Uh, actually, two more. I'm sorry. Two more vacancies came open. Um, and Sarbanes went through the same process, interviewed a number of people. I don't know who he interviewed. And unlike today, there's no public posting. Hey, if you want to apply for a federal district, you know, Sarbanes pretty much played it close to the vest. And he interviewed a number of people, including me again, mm -hmm. and by himself, you know, just really? me and him in a room. Yeah. Uh, took about an hour the second time, about two hours the first mm -hmm. time. Um, and um, lo and behold, uh, the Honorable Kathy Blake, uh, with whom I had served in the U.S. Attorney's Office, who was then a magistrate judge, um, and I were recommended to the White House by uh, Sarbanes. We had our hearings on the same day uh, at the same time, and we were sworn in. Um, on the same day in August of 1995. 95, so that's right after the Republicans had retaken the Senate. Oh yes, absolutely. So did, did you face any higher grilling because of that or did you fall off the radar for U.S. District it, Court it, it's, it's, it's amazing how times have changed. Um, the chair of the Judiciary Committee, I can't believe I don't remember. Racking my brain right now. Well. Bob Dole was the was the minority was the majority leader in the Senate, um, and of course the ninety six candidate for president against Clinton. Um, but but we had we had 
the old style hearing. You know, we got a, a few questions. Um, uh, nobody I, asked you about the lawsuit you filed. Nobody asked me about the lawsuit. The the issue that 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 I was confronted with was, are you going to follow the sentencing guidelines? You know, this was at a time when yeah. the sentencing guidelines were very controversial. Many many federal judges just despised the guidelines. There was so much un injustice in sentencing, and I remember uh, and they were viewed as mandatory. Oh yeah, they were mandatory, not just viewed yeah. as mandatory. They were mandatory, and I'll never forget during the hearing, Judge Blake went first, went up to the table, was sworn in, answered a few questions, and just as my turn came to go up to the witness uh, chair, who comes in from stage right but Strom Thurmond, uh, almost carried along by some mm -hmm. aide, and he, he takes his seat, and he asks me, I won't try to duplicate his Southern drawl, but basically he asked me, uh, Judge Davis, uh, do you think you're going to have a problem, you know, adhering to the federal sentencing guidelines, et cetera? And I said, no, Your Honor, no, no Senator, um, I'm going to follow the law. Yeah. Uh, and that's, that's what I did. I do recall from that era, because Justice Ginsburg had just been confirmed the year before and at her hearings, it was Judge Ginsburg, like, and I was like, that doesn't even sound like I would expect, but that, yeah. he was in his 90s, and it was such a strange time that it, this, it really was. this champion of segregation was still sitting in the Senate and uh, was a man who had wrestled uh, a fellow senator to the floor to try to avoid him casting a vote for the Civil Rights Act of 64. And there he was asking questions of our uh, future federal court judges. And and in my hearing, he got up and left after questioning me. It was, it was very strange, yeah. actually. He came out to question me, and then he got up and left. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I think there was only one Democrat. Of course, Cardin... Sarbanes. Sarbanes, right, not Sarbanes. Um, and Mikulski both showed up, made nice remarks about me, as I recall, uh, introduced me to the committee. Um, but, but uh, and, and Judge Blake. Um, but, but I think that, I don't, I'm not even sure if the chair of the Judiciary Committee was actually there. Uh, frequently, the chairman doesn't show up for non-controversial uh, markups of nominees. Yeah. Um, but as I recall, there was only one, one Democrat, and one one Republican until Thurman came in and left. Um, that was that was that. Yeah. Well, the, these. Was there, Jesse oh, Holmes you know who, on the committee? You know who else was on yeah. the that day was um, a judge on the Ninth Circuit who was held up for like a year. He was a district judge. Uh, who had been nominated by Clinton to the Ninth Circuit. And I'm, I'm not going to recall his name, but he became a friend later. But I remember he, he, had, to, he had to wait more than a year before he was confirmed mm -hmm. uh, uh, to the Ninth Circuit. So some of my favorite things to hear, I mean, I know so many people who have clerked for you over the years and talk about what a terrific mentor you were to them. And what I love are the stories of, when you're a trial court judge, lawyers will call chambers. And often, who would they get when they called your chambers? Uh, sometimes they'd get me. It sounds like it was more than sometimes. And maybe not announce who it was they were even talking to. <laughs> I, I, I tried to be, you know, forthright. But 
every now and then. You take your chances. You, know. you take your chances. Uh, what uh, What's the relationship like you between you and your law clerks? Oh, family, family, family. Um, I have grand clerks. Until the pandemic, my wife and I uh, uh, held a, a summer cookout at our home for any and all clerks who could come. Uh, and in the winter, in December, we typically would hold a, a gathering. Um, in recent years, before the pandemic, we had a lovely restaurant in Columbia, you know, sort of halfway between D.C. and Baltimore, and people could come. Uh, the summer thing would be families with, with kids. The winter thing would be just, you know, three hours just before the holidays to get together. So all of that was very important to me. And I will tell you that, um, uh, I, you know, I, I don't... I don't make friends easily. I'm easy. What am I trying to say? Um, I'm easy to be a friend to, but I'm not easy to make friends. And so um, having the clerkship family is really, they, they're all my friends. They're all yeah. my closest friends. Now, I don't, my closest friends are my former clerks now. Oh, that's true. And, and it's been great. Since I retired, I spent a lot of time writing letters and giving references for people applying for all kinds of things. I performed a number of weddings for law clerks, um, and um, now I can't do that anymore, but that's okay. Some lightning round type questions here. Actually, it's okay. not lightning round. How did you vote on the constitutional amendment to change Maryland's appellate court names? Um, I, I voted. I figured if Judge Barbero wanted it, I was not going to stand in the way. Um, but I voted in favor of it. it. It seemed to, you know, 20 years from now, nobody will care um, if if people care today. But I think it's a good thing for Maryland to have a Supreme Court. And I, I just love because the former chief judge, uh, Robert Bell, very uh, openly voted against the name change. <laughs> yes. And I think he just loved his vote. There's no justice in this courtroom. <laughs> I mean, it's his line there. Uh, and uh, let's see what as you as you look toward in particular towards the younger lawyers I mean they, they've just come up in such a different uh, uh, different world what makes you hopeful for the future of the profession what makes me hopeful is that I believe we have a rich, rich, rich uh, collection of lawyers and judges who care deeply about the law, who care about the profession, and who care about the communities where they work and live. And I look to people like you. You're, you're in that group. I'm not that young anymore. You're not that young anymore. And so I believe that there is hope residing in the fact that for all the turmoil and divisiveness that we see in the country and the weird, weird, unethical, unlawful behavior of some prominent lawyers in the last few years, I think the weight of opinion in the profession is that all of that was bad, unethical, illegal, don't do it. And I think that these young lawyers today are going to be exposed to really upstanding, outstanding lawyers like yourself 
and I think that people like you and, and myself and others um, will take every advantage that we get to mentor young lawyers and help them stay on the straight and narrow. I do believe the law is an honorable profession, and I think that most lawyers agree with that. Now, in closing, I'd like to talk about one of my mentors and role models, the, the late Max Lawton. I uh, was a partner here for uh, many years and passed away in 2010. And one of my most vivid memories was uh, my second uh, argument that I had in the Fourth Circuit was a case that I took over from him while he was dying from cancer. And uh, he pa passed away shortly before argument. And I went to argument and Judge Niemeyer was on the panel and it was very clear I was not winning the case early on. And uh, I'm going through and But at the end, when you came down to shake hands, and you walked over to me and you used that time to just express your condolences. And to me, that was just the height of the profession. And that's, that became the moment from which I began to seek you out uh, for mentorship uh, when I could. Well, thank you. Thank you very much, Steve. Max was um, beloved by everybody who knew him. I knew him in the U.S. Attorney's Office and a little bit afterwards, um, just full of cheer and joy and positivity and uh, just a winning smile. And he just carried himself as a person that you admired. And I so admired him, such a loss. I get choked up just even mentioning his name. Well, uh, I have your verbal commitment here and I will pro se bring you to court for specific enforcement if you don't go along with it, but I'd like to have you back at some point and we can, uh, uh, talk more about your time as a federal judge in the U.S. District Court in the Fourth Circuit, and then the um, the couple of years that you spent as city solicitor after that. I would love to do that, Steve, and, I, and I'm sorry. You know, what did I say to you? I said, 30 minutes? Come on. <laughs> but I had no idea um, that you would unleash this beast of that lives inside me all these stories. And I, you know, well, yeah, you, you gotta, you be, have, you gotta you, be careful when you talk to a retired judge. Who's yeah, seen oh, even a lot. as a judge, because I remember I brought you out to a panel in Salt Lake City one time, Federal Bar uh, Association. We did a panel, unreported opinions. Oh, and that's everyone right. after said, You brought a judge who said things. <laughs> <laughs> that's a great line. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Okay. And again, this has been Steve Klepper with Tremont and Graham, where I had the appellate practice and I've been speaking with retired Fourth Circuit judge and city solicitor Andre Davis. Let's Thank do you. it again. Let's do it again. Soon. Soon.